Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today, we're joined by B. Cerevillo and Brad Blickstein, leaders of new law advisory services at Barrett's and Brunel, a strategic communications and digital marketing agency. B and Brad bring complementary experiences to their roles. B is a longtime business of law leader in top AM law firms, and Brad is a renowned legal industry futurist. Most recently, they released a two-part report on innovation adoption in law firms, which provided fascinating insights on the current rates of adoption. And here's a spoiler alert, the numbers are low, and case studies on successful adoption from a number of large law firms. We are honored to have been profiled. Listen in to today's conversation to learn more about how their individual journeys intersected and culminated in the founding of B&B's new law advisory practice, how their experiences complement each other, and specific insights on adoption in law firms. I hope you enjoy listening in on the conversation. Brad and B, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. It's our pleasure, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. This won't mean anything to our listeners because they don't have the video, Brad, but it looks like a great guitar you have in the background. It is. A, it's actually a, I don't play, unfortunately, but it is a replica of Bruce Springsteen's famous Telecaster that a friend of mine who insists I did a big favor for him that I did no such favor built for me as a gift. So it's very meaningful to me, even though it taunts me every day because I can't play a lick. <laughs> so it's a win-win for your friend. He made a nice gesture and he gets a little something for you every day. That's great. Uh, yeah. And that, and that is exactly right. And that uh, that's what friends are for, right? Absolutely. Well, again, guys, thanks for joining. Let's start with your new practice, which you've started recently called the New Law Practice at Barrett's and Brunel. What do you mean by new law? That term is sort of being bandied about the industry these days and has a variety of meetings, depending on who's talking about what. What does it mean to you folks? To us, really, it's shorthand for new legal service delivery models. So we focus a lot on law firms that are delivering through new legal service delivery models. But as a term, it's really broader than that. And it includes the ALSPs. It includes captive ALSPs, of course, legal tech. But really, for our definition, new law means new legal service delivery models. That's the simple response. So that would include process improvement. You know, it it would include tech enablement. It would include alternative staffing models. It's anything different than what we expect typical law. Okay. This is a new practice area for you folks. I mean, you've been in the industry working in this for a while, but in terms of a formal practice service offering for Barrett's and Brunel, it's new. Why now? What was the initiative to do it? Well, the founder of Barrett's and Brunel, which in fact is a strategic communications advisory firm, is very entrepreneurial in spirit, knew Brad and me for a very long time. And he had this idea about, and I think that Brad, you both hatched that idea, right? That there was a there there in creating a platform for new law. And the three of us went to Arizona, which at the time Brad was living in Arizona, and we whiteboarded for a weekend. And it was quite exciting because we realized that there was great opportunities in the challenges that law firms faced. Yeah. From my point of view, Stephen, so I've been working with, as you know, with law department operations, but also with legal tech companies and 
ALSPs for a very long time. And what I was starting to see is law firms in a lot of ways are starting to look a lot more like those other businesses. They're not always billing hourly. They're starting to use or build legal tech. And more and more law firms are starting to deliver using the broadest term possible innovative offerings. But I had never worked much with law firms. But to me, law firms were starting to look a lot more like these other businesses that I have done a lot of work with. B, on the other hand, you know, sort of the opposite point of view. She's been inside at law firms for many years. And Barris and Burnell as well is, a, is an agency that deals mostly with major law firms. So it seemed like a good fit to sort of combine the opportunity I saw with law firms that I didn't know how to serve all that well, combining with folks who have done nothing but serve law firms extremely well for decades as they evolve into these new areas. So what's the service offering? They go to the website and see a general description, but what's the new law service offering to your constituencies? Really, there's four. We have four pillars, and they align with the evolution of building innovative or new law offerings, uh, mostly at law firms, although we serve ALSPs and, and legal techs as well. Pillar one is information and research, where if you're a firm that maybe has a hunch that they need to be doing things differently or wants to consider providing some innovative offerings or new legal service delivery models, we can help you understand what the marketplace is, why you might want to do that, why it's important. Our second pillar is largely consulting, where we will help you sort of figure out what to do, help you build a program, determine what offerings or what your offering might be. Also tied in with that is the adoption piece, which I know we're going to talk a little more later, where you know once you do build something at a law firm, getting your own lawyers to adopt it can be a challenge. And that's where our consulting arm fits in as well. Third is what we call our lab. It's where we actually will help you build an offering, whether that's technology that we can help you build through our technology partners or whether it's a process-oriented thing or, or creative staffing, whatever it is, whatever your method for new legal service delivery is, we'll help you build it. And then the fourth element, which is in a lot of ways where this kind of started in our minds, is go-to-market strategies, where what we've learned early on is that while law firms might be getting better at building these innovative offerings, they're not terribly good at bringing them to market. And if you think about it, why should they be, right? Like law firms have been marketing based largely on eminence and experience and expertise and the law school the partners went to for a very long time. And when potential clients are interested in buying based on a new model, it's usually efficiency or cost or productivity or some other metric they're really looking for. So it wouldn't make sense that a law firm would be particularly good at bringing these tools to market. But again, we are we at BNB we're good at bringing things to market for law firms. And personally, I've been bringing you know legal tech products to the marketplace for my clients for a couple decades now. So that's our fourth pillar, and and really the impetus of sort of the whole thing in our minds. And what's just interesting about all this is that we have learned from talking to clients that many times they're completely unaware of what their law firms have as offerings, which only proves the point that something that's a real differentiator is largely unknown. Maybe except for the RFP process, a client will not know what their firms are actually doing. So both of you have mentioned a little bit about your background. So let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about your journey that's led you to here. B, let's start with you. I know you spent a lot of time working as chief strategy officer or or similar roles in a number of big law firms. Talk a little bit about that and sort of what did you learn 
from that because strategy is a piece of your current offering. Exactly. So as you said, I have spent the better part of my career in big law in C-level positions. Interestingly enough, and not by necessarily choice, but by happenstance, I served in law firms when they were actually at pivotal points in their own lifespan. And so I have been able to sort of witness firsthand, A, the power of a very good strategy, what leadership looks like in getting a global law firm to pivot in a, a productive way, the success of actually having a strategy and a vision for a firm and really playing chess with the people internally to, you know, win the game, which is the adoption piece. And, you know, in each and every one of my experiences, I was fortunate enough to be with firms that were interested in moving in a different direction because the way they were currently situated was not productive for them. So it gave me like a really clear view as to what works and what doesn't, as to how to achieve your goals and the importance of having them in the first place. And after my my last firm, I think the marketplace, frankly, is quite exciting in terms of really the amount of opportunity law firms have to really think differently about the delivery of legal services. And I realized for myself, I really enjoyed working with attorneys and working them through the change management piece. And as I mentioned earlier, when, you know, Spencer talked about the idea of launching a platform and understanding that it would give me the opportunity to work with firms in a space where I feel like I have a high level of competency, I was very, very excited about that. So a couple questions off that. First, what attracted you to the legal profession? I don't think you're a lawyer by training. No, I'm not. And so you're you're one of those allied professionals that has been a key driver of change. What took you down the law firm route? You know, interestingly enough, I was situated in a, a law firm right out of college by an accountant who thought I should be in business and saw I was extremely artsy fartsy. So he managed to get me to go to a law firm and be their bookkeeper. <laughs> and that's how my career started. And I eventually worked my way up the ladder and became their office manager. And one thing led to another. And I was in boutique style law firms in my younger days in the administrative capacity, but have been incredibly fortunate to have amazing mentors in leadership who really took me under their wing. And I learned a lot about the dynamics of law firms. And I did leave. I went to the New York Stock Exchange for a period of time to try out a different job. And, and I wanted to be more external than internal because as we know, the administrative function sort of is you know, in the back. I wanted to see if I could interact with clients. And I was there for five years at a very pivotal time of the exchange as well. And felt like I really had learned a lot at the exchange and, and I sort of wanted to bring back to legal what, what I found. And at that time, the first firm I went to was dynamically changing. And I went there and in no time, frankly, I was, you know, charged with rolling out a practice management function globally. And again, incredible mentorship and then mentorship over and over again. So I stayed with it. I never thought I could ever top my experience. Um, I always could say, oh my God, I'm so fortunate. Should I leave this? And, and the truth of the matter is each and every time 
I was fortunate enough to be mentored by a leader who, as I said, took me under his wing. And so I've stuck with law and I feel it's actually my strength. Working with lawyers is is definitely my strength. Ian, last question on this before I turn to Brad. It's not always easy as an allied professional working in a firm of, of lawyers and partners who are smart, highly motivated and think highly of themselves sometimes. Uh, (laughs) What tips or advice do you give other people who are looking to carve a similar kind of path? What, What did you learn that you share with people coming up? It's an excellent question, Stephen. Lawyers are their own breed. (laughs) And it takes a a certain level of disarming that you need to have the ability to do without being offensive. And so when I look at my younger self, I see myself so much more effective today because I'm all about being on the same side as the lawyer I'm working with and not opposing, not demanding, not trying to educate, but being on that person's same side, hearing what their feelings are and working through them to achieve what I'm trying to accomplish. And that was a hard lesson to learn. I see it in, in, in many of my colleagues who are in law and, and it, it's a hard lesson. I mean, sometimes you are hired with the intention to do certain functions and you want to run with those functions and you know, you know the right answer. And it's not enough in a law firm, you know, just <laughs> by nature of being the smartest person in that area does not give you the right to be able to influence the firm in any way, shape or form. And I think if you learn that lesson and are still able to achieve the types of changes you're setting out to do, you'll be successful. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> it did. It's, it's great advice. Thank you very much. Brad, you've been uh, law adjacent for most of your career as well, uh, with a broader spectrum of service providers into the profession. What caused you to sort of make this journey? Yeah, it's my entire career. And my first job out of college, and I graduated in a uh, bad job market, very unlike what's going on today. And the only job offer I got was to be the office manager for a legal magazine called Illinois Legal Times. I was like employee number six charged with like buying the toilet paper and sending out the bills and was really proud of myself for negotiating my starting salary up from the offer of $15,000 up to $17,000 to take that job. Well done. Yeah. And it was the early 90s. So that's not quite as bad as it sounds today, but it still wasn't good. Um, (laughs) And within a year, we launched Corporate Legal Times, which was the first really magazine for in-house counsel. We were still in a at a moment in time then where the law firms still kind of ran everything. And law departments and in-house counsel, general counsel even were sort of considered, you know, second class citizen or well, that's where the people in the third quartile from my law school end up, you know, in-house. And it wasn't that as clear as it probably should have been that they hold the keys to the castle, right? Like they control all the or most of the business. So that magazine took off extremely well. We hit the moment right on. I ended up buying it and then selling it and launching my career really in consulting and managed services and research, serving, again, mostly ALSPs and legal techs. And then in 2008, I launched my law department operations annual survey. Let's talk about that survey because you're now 14 years, something like that. Yeah, we'll, we will publish the 14th annual in a few weeks from when we're recording this. So maybe even before you know the podcast season a lot of day, depending on your timing. Yeah. 
What general trends have you seen over that? What do you learn from the surveys? So much. Um, and it's, it really is, it's a labor of love at this point, but it's, you know, it's also just a labor. We collect, you know, 300 data points from roughly 100 law departments each year. The first thing we've learned, and this is going to be no surprise to anybody, is just the enormous growth and growth and influence of law department operations people. For the first survey we did in 2008, and this was before there was clock, this was before ACC had a legal ops element. I called in every favor I had, and we put together a board of 10 or so legal ops people, and we called in every favor we had, and we got 34 people to respond to the survey, including the 10 board members. And we felt like that was probably a good half or two-thirds of the market at the time. Like There just wasn't that many. But we did know that when there was a legal ops person, they were powerful within the organization, at least in terms of legal tech, in terms of legal, if not selection of counsel, certainly in terms of building the processes around selecting counsel, those sorts of things. Over time, it's become really important for law departments, many law departments, to, I'm going to use the term professionalize. And obviously, I'm not talking about legal professionals. I'm talking about business. And to act more like other business units. And that's where legal ops people come in. So when we're talking about more formalized purchasing of law firm and other services, and we're talking about using data to make decisions and applying technology and building the right staff for the law department, all the things that, frankly, every other business unit in a company just does as a matter of course. The law department operations professionals are often sort of right at the nexus of that sort of driving. You know, they're the ones who drive all that. And we've seen, it's, it's been really interesting. And we've seen in a lot of ways their influence grow and their power grow in a lot of law departments. But what we've also seen is that it's a sort of a big trend to get into law department operations for law departments to realize they need some operational functionality. And there's so many different things that a legal ops person is responsible for that there's a really wide array in the quality of the people and a quality of the work within the legal ops function within law departments. There are some people that I would absolutely trust to run any business that I ever owned. And there are some that, you know, were a contract paralegal two months ago. You know, it's a very wide array because there's just not enough talent and some law departments aren't putting enough resources into it. And it fools people sometimes where they think that this law department operations person is sort of this all powerful wizard of the law department. And it's just growing too fast for that to be the case everywhere. No, absolutely. And it's been a big change agent, as you said, in the profession, this particular skill set has been. Really skill sets. I mean, it's, it's you need a wide variety of skill sets to do that job well. No, absolutely right. Absolutely right. I was struck, you know, pre-pandemic going to the clock conference and just seeing the size of it and the success as, as well as the ACC equivalent, the numbers of people. It's been an enormous growth area for the profession. Yeah. When I started, there might have been 50 people in that role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are thousands now. Let's talk about your newest report uh, where you put out a two-part report dealing with adoption of tech and other innovative techniques in law firms. What was the purpose of the report and what was the motivation for doing it? I would say the purpose for all our reports is to really provide clarity where there's a lot of noise. <laughs> I think that, you know, we have seen time and again that the information that is in the marketplace is confusing and not necessarily motivational because you can't tell what's real and what's fake. So we go out of our way to try and provide clarification. So that was what motivates all our reports. 
But this particular report was based on our interaction with clients and really hearing the frustrations of people who are in these jobs, who are really building and doing their job to the optimum and yet not having success in having what they are building, you know, actually be adopted within the firm. Yes. So in your first report, you identified 10 initiatives that you measured against firms doing them, not doing them, et cetera. How did you pick those 10? What was your methodology? Was this based on information from clients? Is it what you're seeing in the market? How how did you select those 10 initiatives? Yeah, both of those, um, based on what we see in the market, we talked to some clients, we talked to some other people that we trust and think are really good in this space. And a year ago, we released a report on captive ALSPs in law firms. And first of all, we, for what it's worth, we found a lot more captive ALSPs in law firms than we would have expected. But as we were doing the desk research part of that project, we collected information about other things firms were doing that weren't captive ALSPs, which didn't make that report. But we had a hunch that, you know, we'd do something with that information. And then that became the basis for these 10 potential initiatives that we saw a lot of firms were doing it, even when we were looking for whether or not they actually had a captive ALSP or not. And you found some interesting patterns in terms of what was being applied and what wasn't being applied. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say the the first thing is that more law firms are trying these initiatives than we would have thought. You know, we got 44 of the 223 firms that are either in the AMLAW 200 or the Global 200. 44 of them responded to our survey. And for the most part, they're trying a lot of stuff. And we were really impressed by how many different initiatives were at least in play a little bit at each law firm. But then from there, we built a maturity model to test how pervasive these initiatives were within the law firm. So it wasn't good enough just to say, hey, we're trying that because that could be one tool built for one partner in one place, which is not nothing, but it's not everything either. And what we found, this didn't surprise us a lot. What we found is that general immaturity amongst most of these initiatives at most firms. That is, you know, most are in play maybe within a practice group or maybe by one attorney or using by one attorney or with one client. But a relatively small number of these initiatives would be considered pervasive or even close to pervasive throughout the firm. So more trying than we thought, but about the level of success that we suspected. I would also add that when you look at the series of products, you'll see that the products that have been out longer are the products that probably have been used more, which sort of fits into the strain of law firms because they like to see something that's tried and true before they invest in it. So the ones that have been longer in the marketplace are the ones that have been at least purchased. They might be on the shelf, but at least purchased. I also, you know, want to add because it was a question you know, that we've been asked is that, well, you probably only got people who are doing innovative stuff to answer the survey. And the truth of the matter is, if that's the case, they're not doing that well. So no, our our selection of firms, you know, was across the board. Let's turn our attention to part two of the survey, which is really interesting to me because you're talking about adoption. You measured those mature and those immature in terms of adoption of technology, but you began to look for some of the factors and some of the variables that were driving adoption. And and there were some interesting conclusions you drew from that. Perhaps you could share a little bit with our listeners as to what you found and what conclusions you reached. 
That's exactly right. And that, that was sort of the impetus of the whole report. We use the movie Field of Dreams as an analogy here. And, you know, the famous line from that is, you know, if you build it, they will come. And, you know, kind of our initial hypothesis was if what you're building are new law initiatives, they won't or they won't just come. And that sort of was borne out in, in our maturity model work on part one. And then we went and looked at, well, what are the firms that are doing better here? What are the things that allow them to be more effective or to put it bluntly in Field of Dreams terms? What will make them come? What will, will make the, the partners come? And we found a few things. We found a number of elements here. To talk about that, I would say the number one big differentiator we found is training. You know, more training, more effective is really the simple takeaway there. Training on what? Training on what the product is. So the tool itself. So when we talk about training, what we have found is that there's a rollout and then there's a big training. And then most firms leave it at that. And the truth of the matter is, as we know, as, as all of us, or not Brad knows, but at least you and I, Stephen, you know, you get the big a- email that there's going to be training and how many people show up. And then that's the end of that, right? And it's the firms that actually put a pattern together of what training looks like. So how do they do their outreach? It's how many times they retrain. It's who they train first. And unfortunately, I think what happens sometimes in law firms is that there's so much emphasis on what happens to get the product done, to get it all set up, that once it's rolled out, many people just walk away. And the truth of the matter is that's when the work just begins. It's not enough to just launch. It's what you do after the launch that creates the stickiness that's necessary to get the adoption. And we see that in those that do branding. We see that in those that do consistent outreach. We see that in the people that are very inclusive in their approach. Like these were definitely the signs of the firms that were much more successful. They were definitely going down this road. And then the incentive piece, which so I see incentives and inclusiveness as two factors that go hand in hand. So inclusive meaning, how could you possibly build a product when you're not an attorney? How could you possibly build a product when you don't work in my practice? Yet, when we asked you to participate in all of the planning meetings, you told us you were unavailable. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> I, I may have seen that dynamic or I may not have. I'm not, I'm not, you're not going to pin me down on that. <laughs> so, but at the end of the day, there has to be inclusiveness and that inclusiveness could look very different. It could be an associate. It could be an attorney that is you know, more tech oriented, whatever. There has to be inclusiveness from the practice to develop, you know, the product, but there also needs to be an incentive, some incentive as to why that individual or individuals are going to invest time in building a product. You know, what does that look like? Is it a credit hour? What happens when they lose the revenue? Like, is there a revenue stream that comes back? And like all of these questions and those firms that have put something in place. And this is very complex. And we're only at the tip of the iceberg on this. But for those firms that have at least acknowledged it, they're doing much better. And so you've gone through a number of variables that speed adoption or or let it be sticky. As you sit down and advise your clients about how to put together a strategy, how do you sort of Take all of this and distill it and share the information with them because not everybody can do everything. How do you help them set priorities? One 
be intentional and programmatic, even just in the training data we have, you know, ad hoc doesn't work as well. Be intentional, programmatic. Pay a lot of attention to what you can do to get the attorney's attention. You're talking to busy people. You're talking to successful people. You're talking to people that don't necessarily want to interact. And again, as B pointed out, like on one level, they absolutely want to interact. But where the you know rubber meets the road, a lot of times they kind of don't. You know, I, I remember joking on a call with a client who was, I wish that our innovation team involved me earlier. Well, do you read the emails they send you? <laughs> no, I don't read emails from... Well, when they invite you to webinars, no, no more webinars, you know, and, and it's like, well, what are you thinking? Sleep tapes, maybe? Like, what do you, what's your plan here to get this information, right? You have to overcome that and you have to build a, a plan to overcome that. And I think the, the third element that I have, I'm just going to trumpet what, what B said, is that a successful law firm partner is not necessarily incentivized or doesn't see themselves as incentivized to deliver legal services in a different way. So you have to incentivize them both sort of in terms of understanding the why and the wherefore, but also, am I going to get credit for this time? That's an issue that people think about, especially at the associate level, is that if this works, is my team's revenue going to go down? Am I going to have work for my associates to do? I mean, there's a whole lot of conflicting issues there. And it's hard. You have to make sure you focus on that, focus on motivating people, whether it's financial incentives or something else, because otherwise, why would they play ball with you? I would just add that our normal intake process involves talking to partners because you get a very different read from what the partner experience is. And while a department that's focused on this might have the best of intentions, they just might make missteps because their priorities are different and they don't really recognize what the impact is on how they do things. And the things that I think are sort of consistent from firm to firm is that, you know, messaging is so important in this, but messaging it in the proper way without making it noise, right? Like inundating emails, all of that. Like there's different approaches to getting your message across and not only getting your message across to, you know, what your product is, but arming the attorneys with messaging so that they're comfortable talking about it as well. And so that there's more of an understanding. It becomes more integrated in their work life, right? So communication is really, you know, a very important part of the process and communicating in a way that's effective. I'll add that, you know, Standard marketing tools and strategies apply here, even if it's internal. If you think about it this way, you know, look, Anheuser-Busch launched Bud Light 30 years ago. They still buy ads on the Super Bowl every year. And it's no different just because they're your partners in the law firm. Like the idea that like, well, we sent an email when we launched the thing and we had a press release and we asked everybody to go to it. Any marketer will tell you that that's crazy, that there's no chance of working. And it's not going to work on the broad, you know, beer buying public in America. And it's not going to work on law firm partners either. You have to build a plan and you have to be consistent. And don't waste any partner's time. I mean, that's so important. And so make sure that your messaging is directed to the right partners. And when I say right partners, if you have a product that's for a specific practice, you don't need the whole firm to know about it. Not in the beginning. You need the case studies that are relevant to them to be shared with them, but you don't need everything shared with them. Communicate properly and don't flood every possible network with stuff that becomes noise. Well, thank you, guys. We've run out of time. Last question for y'all. If listeners want to get copies of the report, 
they can do it. Where do they do it? Very simple. They can just go to barrettsburnell.com, B-A-R-E-T-Z-B-R-U-N-E-L-L-E.com. And there's a nice little box that will pop up right on the homepage that will allow them to download the reports. And we'll put a link in the show notes too. Brad B., thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful having you share your insights. Thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.